This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aura Nation right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I'm co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at University of Technology, Sydney. And my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Today we are going to delve deep into the future of journalism, in particular how to fund it, with one of the country's most experienced editorial executives and media innovators. On the line from Melbourne, welcome to the Fourth Estate, Andrew Jasmine. Hello, Peter. Um, I think you probably match my experience, but anyway, go uh, ahead. Oh, no, I'm not sure. I think you shaved me. But anyway, it's not that sort of competition. Um, here is a taste of Andrew's CV. Uh, founder and editor of The Conversation, editor-in-chief of The Age, editor of The Observer in London, that is, uh, editor of The Scotsman, editor of The Scotland on Sunday. There's a few more I've missed. But what actually, Andrew, is your title now? I'm now the director of the Global Academy, which is based here at RMIT University with the support of uh, Western Sydney University, actually, uh, RMIT, Melbourne University, uh, Deakin University, and uh, Monash. Well, okay, we'll get to uh, uh, the, the Global Academy later in the show. But first, I'd like to start off with just uh, a couple quick questions, because we are in the middle of an election campaign, in fact, just past the halfway point. It seems to me, I'm interested in your impressions on the election campaign so far, it seems to me that it's been pretty negative, pretty messy. How do you think the media has performed, though, in all of this? Um, I, I think uh, it's, it's a very difficult question, Peter, because I think um, I would start off by saying I think most people have made up their minds. Mm. Um, if you take the, the, the polls, they've been incredibly consistent for the last three years or so. And don't forget, these polls are asking people the same kind of questions every two weeks. So there's been no swings at mm. all for the last uh, three years. Um, it's all pointed to a change of government, and I think most people have made up their minds. Um, there so, are a few, uh, there, so they're not engaged? Are, no. So there are a few people in the middle who, who uh, potentially are kind of saying, let me see what bribe I can be offered or what sweetener I, I can be offered, and mm. I'll make my decision uh, on, based on that. But I think, to a large part, there's no real discussion out there. I think the media is wondering what the hell to do. I'm wondering what the point of a you know, four-week contest even is. Mm. Uh, and the fact that so many people, I think it's, it's anywhere between half a million and, and 600,000 people have already voted. Mm. Um, I, I think you'll find that number will inflate to well over 5 million before Election Day on the 18th of May. just shows that, frankly, people are not really bothered about the, the, the debate. I think... The, 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 the debate is very poor. 
I think people are lost with the size of some of the numbers being thrown around. I'm just staggered by the number of kind of bribes that are being pulled out of the hat constantly. Mm, remarkable uh, numbers, aren't they? Remarkable. Yeah. So I think the whole thing's pretty poor, Peter, and I think most people have switched off. I, I really, I mean, I, I talk quite widely to people, including, by the way, students here at RMIT, mm. and I don't find anybody really engaged in this election. Okay, so if you were uh, still editor-in-chief of The Age, and if I were, say, still editor-in-chief of the Sydney Morning Herald, what would we be, should we be telling our reporters to do? Should Go we be... leave. <laughs> go on, leave, save us some money. Um, get off the bus and start talking to the real people. I mean, is there a risk? I don't know if there is, but it might be a risk here that the journalists, you're on the bus, kind of, you know, mesmerized by this election that no one else is mesmerized by, might be in danger of missing, uh, you know, what the real people are thinking. So, you know, for instance, is Clive Palmer Donald Trump? What do you think about that idea? Well, First of all, um, and you probably know this, Peter, because we've worked together in the past, but I'm no fan of you know, reporters being locked up in a bus mm, mm. Uh, and being spoon-fed stories. I just think it's the lowest form of journalism, really is. And frankly, uh, I would pull people off the bus and save my budget because it costs money to be on the bus or the plane or whatever else. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I do think there are some sort of really big issues uh, at stake in this election. I think it's a, it's a bit of a crossroad election. Um, and it's really around, I think, two very big issues. Um, uh, the first one is around climate, and I won't go into that because uh, I think you're well aware that, um, that there are very strong feelings now. And um, I'm just delighted in many ways that it's made a bit of a comeback at this election. Mm -hmm. And this is driven by international pressures. As you probably know, there are strikes being held by schools around the world where kids are really getting involved in the subject. And particularly in London, there's, there's a mm. lot of um, uh, activity. So that's the first one. The second one, I think, is broadly around um, two things, which are actually the same issue, and that is taxation and public services. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one side, you've got a party that is arguing really for uh, reducing or cutting taxation, which means you've got less money to spend on services. And on the other side, you've got a party that wants to spend more on services, which means, of course, you've got to raise money one way or another, which is, which is taxation, mm -hmm. to support those services. So it really falls down to an ideological split. Are you for public services, or would you rather public services were broadly privatized, where you paid for your own school, you, you paid for your own health, you paid for your own mm -hmm. car, you, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera? Or do you believe in public schools, public transport, um, public uh, health, uh, et cetera? So... There's a kind of an ideological divide there. And um, just because people are somewhat tired of the, the old parties, although I do think there might be somewhat of a swing back to that, you've also got all the minor players uh, mm -hmm. who are, in a sense, playing out either local issues or uh, parties like Clive Palmer and One Nation, which, which have a, a bit more of an appeal in sections of redneck Queensland and other redneck areas around Australia. But I think, um, if I can just make this final point, mm -hmm. I do think that during this campaign, and probably just before, um, one nation has been holed um, just below the water by the Al Jazeera investigation, the excellent investigation carried out by them and run on ABC, initially into um, James Ashby and Steve Dixon's activities in America, and then the follow-up on, on a current affair on, on Channel 9 
into the topless bar activities of uh, Steve Dixon. Mm. I think those two have meant I've seen their poll numbers tumble from 8% before to 4% or maybe less. And there's also a lot of stuff now. I think there's a little bit more scrutiny, thank goodness, uh, on Clive Palmer and his unpaid bills and, and mm-hmm. uh, his supposed uh, payment of monies to Aboriginal trusts, which, which have, you know, have effectively amounted to zero. Mm. Um, so, so I think there's a little bit more scrutiny there, which, which might make people in parts of Australia think twice about voting for some of these minor parties. So some of the best journalism, as you say, is actually might have been done by um, Al Jazeera. By foreign reporting. By foreign reporters, yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. Maybe, well, maybe we'll just outsource Australian journalism. <laughs> well, no, no, because we're going to go to how we're going to fund it in a second. Yeah, well, but, we are. Yeah. Well, before we get to that point, uh, just quickly, because we both had the pleasure of working with Anthony Catalano, the former Domain CEO, who, as we all know, has emerged victorious in his quest to buy the former... Fairfax Regionals for what looks like to be a bargain deal of about $115 million. So that's a job lot that includes the Canberra Times, the Newcastle Herald, the Wollongong Mercury, the Border Mail, and about or more than 150 more publications. Is this a good move for Australian journalism? What do you think? Well, um, look, we both know Anthony. Um, you've had the privilege of actually editing the Canberra Times, which, as you will recall, when it was owned by Rural Press, was run on um, not only the smell of an oily rag, but I don't think it even was an oily rag to, to smell. <laughs> we shared it around. We passed it around. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so uh, look, um, I, I honestly do not know what he's going to do, but let me tell you, there's a couple of things which, um, which I think augur well, and I may be proved wrong. The first is that he actually has been a reporter and does under, understand the value of, of journalism. Uh, more so, uh, when he was at Domain and part of Fairfax, um, he actually argued at board level uh, for retaining the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, the Age, and the other mastheads on the basis that he thought this provided him with uh, market differentiation to the Australian and the tabloids in the mm-hmm. Murdoch stable who support realestate.com. Mm-hmm. So he thought his mastheads gave him a, a slightly higher... Uh, ABC market, as it were, in socio-demographic terms, and he thought they really helped the business. So I think he will use his new mastheads to support what he knows best these days, which is um, either real estate or advertising businesses. Um, he's very much involved in that area. He, he also owns, by the way, a advertising uh, purchasing company. Mm. Um, that's not exactly the right word, but yeah. a buying company I'd as buy well. Agency, yeah. Yeah, so he, he knows a lot about ad buying. Um, he knows a huge amount about real estate, but I actually do think he values the role of quality journalism. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing, sorry for a slightly long-winded reply, is that he's paid so little money for this. Um, let's not forget when Fairfax and Rural Press merged, Rural Press were valuing their papers at something like $3 billion. Um, he, and that, that was only 12 years ago. He's got properties which were worth three billion back then for 115 million, of which, by the way, he's only paying um, 105 million because there's a 10 million to be paid later on. Mm-hmm. So he's paid just over 100 Bar- million. Absolute bargain. Some, you know, the steal. So now, the steal. The reason I mention that it's not just the steal. It means that um, he's not overpaid for these properties, which means I think he's got the ability to invest in them and. 
I've heard him elsewhere talk about the requirement to invest in them. So he's bought cheap and can invest as opposed to buying expensive and having to immediately cut costs and divest. I don't know if you follow that argument, but um, mm -hmm. you see what I'm saying? Yeah, think, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, well, well, as you say, we'll wait and see what happens. But yeah, I mean, I was on Canberra Radio the other day saying I thought it was a potentially a very positive move for the Canberra Times and, and others. So let's wait and yeah. see. Um, okay, let's cut to the chase, to the big picture. Um, let's talk about social platforms and how they may or may not wish to uh, be seen and or how they may or may not wish to fund journalism. Uh, in recent days, we've seen Facebook continuing to try and clean up the well, in essence, is the crap on its platform, and I guess in doing so, its own image. Uh, most the last few days, uh, in terms of banning hate speakers and the like, and there's been other moves around uh, privacy and such like. But the bigger picture, and this the picture that you've put in a submission to the ACCC, is this creation of harnessing the wealth, really, of Facebook and Google to create an, what you've called an independent future fund for journalism, funded by what in essence is a kind of community levy on the digital platforms. Talk us through that. How It's a kind of turnover tax, right? Yes. And talk us, how would you see that working? And what's the plan? Um, so, Peter, uh, the first thing to say is this, that um, there's some brand new figures which have just been published, as you probably know, in mm. the Sydney Morning Herald uh, and The Age, um, which show, because I, I, the figures I've, I've got, uh, I had previously with 2017 figures. Mm -hmm. So these are updated by year. And what they actually show is that for uh, the year 2018, um, Facebook alone uh, made $598 million in Australia from sales last year. Yep. Um, now, on that, they only paid $11.8 million tax. Yep. Now, um, just for any of you, your listeners, when, when they get around to hearing this, so they understand how they can do it, it goes as follows. Um, they sell advertising into Australia, uh, but it's all invoiced out of either Singapore or Dublin. Mm -hmm. So it means that the money doesn't actually touch the sides of Australia. It just flows straight out uh, of the country. When it says they paid $11.8 in tax in this, in this country, that's because they actually do have activities in this country um, and so they actually do have uh, some sales staff for example they do have some people doing some odds and ends um, and that uh, led to them recording uh, a profit of 35 million so they paid 11.8 million on 35 million so that kind of makes sense mm -hmm. That's the, about problem right. is, yep. the, the problem is that excludes the 598 million which seamlessly flows out of the country Yep. I mean, so, just so the platforms would say, but hey, hang on, we're, we're growing a business here, we're investing in Australia, we're even spending money on Australian journalism. Um, what do you say to that? I mean, they're trying to do the right thing, or are you basically saying, you know, yeah, no, they're, not. They're, they're, not, spin. they're not. They're not doing the right thing at all. So, oh. so what they're taking is there's a pool of money out there, um, and the sums of money, uh, and forgive me, Peter, but you and I have both seen the ACCC graphs, but the sum of money is something like about uh, $8 billion, uh, in advertising. Mm -hmm. The two of them, Facebook and Google, Google take a lot more. They take about $4.5 of advertising. So between the two, they've got about five of the $8 billion, uh, um, in advertising dollars uh, removed from Australia. So, it's just, so they conduct business in this country, and whereas uh, everybody else pays tax on their operations in this country... They just take those revenues straight out, and, and they go back to 
um, you know, their headquarters in, in Mountain View or wherever else their headquarters. Mm. So uh, you, would cl- you would, in essence, try to close that capacity to send yeah, it no, off? No, no. So no. What my, my argument is this, is I think this is doing a social injustice in Australia. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by the injustice is it's taking money out of one's ability to hire journalists in this country. And don't forget, we've lost, uh, I think, since 2000 and. Uh, to something like about 4,000 journalists in this yeah. country anyway. Since about 2012, I think, yeah. Uh, so yeah. the lights have gone off in many newsrooms all over Australia, uh, and the expertise has, has left these newsrooms. And it's not being replaced by anything because the money is not there to fund them. It's just, the money has just literally left the Australian till and gone overseas. So what I'm saying is, you know, let's not penalise these players in terms of Google and Facebook, but let's introduce something like a civic uh, levy or a social levy mm-hmm. or a social license to operate in this country and say, okay, you're between you cumulatively taking $5 billion of the $8 billion available in advertising in this country out of the country. Let's apply, and this is in my submission to the ACCC, let's apply a 10% levy, uh, which is like a community levy, mm-hmm. which goes into a fund. So 10% obviously is, is $500 million. Uh, which goes into a fund, which then uh, is is made available to hire journalists in particularly four areas I've identified. The first is in regional and community uh, um, reporting. The second one is in specialist reporting, meaning science, health, education, uh, business, etc. The third area is in coverage of town halls, police rounds, mm-hmm. uh, and parliaments. And the fourth area is to go into production, uh, photography, sub-editing, editing, and so on and so forth. So uh, houses would be able to apply for this money um, and be able to then bring journalists or reporters back into the, the newsrooms and hopefully uh, give us the service, and by service I mean the level of scrutiny uh, that a good fourth estate watchdog uh, organization ought to do. And when you talk about the election, this allows you then to scrutinize much more closely mm-hmm. the activities of um, candidates seeking election. So what sort of uh, responses have you had to this idea? I mean, you know the ACCC is still working on its final report. That's out in a couple of months probably. Um, so we haven't seen a response from the ACCC. But when you've talked to others about it, um, I'm assuming that most people in the news media industry would think it's a good idea. Um, uh, look... To, to say no is like voting so everybody thinks it's a good idea that the, the the issue really is twofold one is um, I, I get the feeling although the ACCC won't give me a tick that they they think this is a good idea which they can pick up and smarter people than me can figure out how it can actually work that's the first thing um, the second thing is that it depends on who wins the election because mm. um, um, I've, I've sort of asked uh, some of the people in the communication areas in Labour uh, for their views on such a proposal because they, they're very concerned about what's going on as well. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the kind of proposal that, that, that they might think was useful for them to pick up. Um, and on the coalition side of things, I think equally, you know, that they obviously commissioned this uh, ACCC um, report or investigation. So... They'll be looking for, you know, some good ideas. The critical thing is this. In this proposal I put forward, Peter, it isn't suggesting for a moment that Google and Facebook don't make huge sums of money. 
if we if we had a 10% community uh, uh, license charge upon them, on that $5 billion, it means they don't take $5 billion out of this country. They just take $4.5 billion, as it were. So mm. they, lose, they lose half a billion. But they're still taking out an enormous amount of money, which is draining the pool for, in terms of advertising, to support um, reporting and, and editorial staff. So in, a, in one sense, it's a bit like a resource rent tax. Yeah, you know, as miners are charged for basically extracting the the Commonwealth, small C Commonwealth of Australia. Correct. Yeah, and it deals with profit shifting, which is you know the crime, as it were, that that I think they're doing right now. They're just moving it out so it can't be taxed in this country. Has Facebook so, or Google said anything to you about it? Um, I don't know, Peter. I I haven't actually sent it to them. But well, they would have seen it, it. That's all. Well, it's loaded on the A Triple C website, exactly. which is publicly available. Yeah. Oh, well, so, I, guess um, I guess they're waiting Peter, for the ACCC. Yeah, what, what, I'm, what I guess, I just want to make this point to you, is that I think the idea of just small incremental grants, mm-hmm. uh, as in, you know, let's put a million into here and a million into there, although it sounds good and everybody applauds, you know, that somebody's put a little bit of money in, what I'm talking about is actually a, uh, a, a sort of, uh, building capacity at scale yeah, back game into changer. journalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, game, I, it's yeah, a game changer if that yeah. were to happen. I should, I should add, as by way of full disclosure, is that the Centre for Media Transition has received some of the small amounts of money Andrew's talking about um, from Facebook and some small amounts of money, well, actually $100,000 or so from um, Google to set up the first draft initiative, which I'll be talking about in the near future. But so, yeah. and that, and look, to be quite frank about that is that there isn't a lot of other places, perhaps other than say the Judith Nielsen initiative that is offering sort of money to support public interest journalism, right? Absolutely. Queuing up to give it to journalists. Yeah. And again, Peter, you know, I think it's terrific that Facebook and Google give you money, but can I tell you, cause I, I I've looked into all this, that money actually comes from their PR and marketing budget. So mm. it's, it's a way of them kind of trying to cover their blushes, in a sense. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm so, just trying to cover mine. No, no. Well, I, I, I think it's good, you know, and, and I would take money from them, obviously, if they were to, to offer them money. But I think one has to just be aware of what they're up to. I mean, mm. they're, you know, mm. when, when they're taking out between them $5 billion and they then give you $100,000, just, mm-hmm. just bear in mind yeah, yeah, what the game is. No, I, of course. Now, I, I, I'm not um, yeah. I'm not, so, not a so naive both of us, Both of us welcome the Judith Nielsen Institute. Yeah. But that's $100 million, not $100 million a year, by the way, Peter. That's $100 million endowment. In yes, yes. Yeah. What I'm talking about here is an annual turnover or an annual social levy or a, I quite like your term of a resource tax, as it were, um, which is um, which is an which it could be in in the area of five hundred uh, million a mm. year. Mm. Yeah, cumulatively, okay. it could build up. It could go into. And what I'd like to do is to find a way to ensure that those monies are protected and and a little bit like a future fund for journalism. Future fund uh, for journalism. Yes, right. So just talk about money and funding because one of your great um, great um, uh, contributions to Australian journalism has been the setting up. The idea of and the setting up and the and the editing of the conversation uh, for people who don't know what the conversation I'm sure most people who listen to the yeah. this show will know what it is but tell us about the conversation and how you came up with this idea and you know and how you started it and you know how tough was that um, 
Well, Peter, the toughest bit of all was after I left the age, um, I was just really trying to figure out what to do next. Um, and uh, I was approached by Glyn Davis, who at the time was vice chancellor at Melbourne University. And we talked about the state of journalism. And I said that rather than write endlessly about how precarious and how bad things were, I'd like to actually try and do something. And he said, well, look, um, what do you think that would be? I said, I'm not quite sure, but I'd like to see if there's a, a different way to produce high-quality, informed uh, journalism. And he said, well, good luck. I'll give you a desk. Uh, here's 10 people I think you should talk to amongst my smartest. And I went away and uh, spoke to them all. And it suddenly came to me that these are the, the smart people I would love to inhabit my virtual newsroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were academics. Maybe. They were all academics. But, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm talking about Nobel scientists yeah, yeah. here yeah. and the like. Um, truly smart people, well-informed. The, the one thing they don't have, as you know, Peter, is the ability to sometimes uh, speak in plain language, as it were. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is they don't obviously have the discipline of a newsroom in terms of a word length and when the story has to be in by and so on and so forth. So what I actually came up with was this idea of a hybrid where the academic, in a sense, was the, the reporter um, and the journalist sitting alongside just helped them uh, knock that into, uh, into shape in terms of being an 800-word article, which, which had a, the usual sort of conventions of journalism, mm-hmm. um, and a deadline. And um, I launched it. Um, I managed to raise $9 million to get it going over three years. And that was all uh, from universities mainly, wasn't it? No, it's main. Well, no, sorry. A third was universities. A third was Victorian state government. A third was federal government. Oh, okay, yep. It was free yeah, matching yep. funds. And we launched it in 2011, and um, it's now, you know, a great success. It operates in seven different countries around the world. So, so um, that was, in a sense, scaling up journalism without, um, I mean, at, at a fractional cost, because most of the reporters, and by the way, in Australia, something like about, um, I think the figure is, is in the region of about 10,000 uh, academics across Australia, have written for the site over the past seven years. Um, and, um, you know, so it's, it's just, in a sense, using an untapped resource. And is, what happens to the, just for the listeners, what happens to that uh, copy? It's sent out into the world, isn't it? It's a creative comment. Yes, that's right. So it's free, so, free to anyone. Yeah, so the editors uh, commission it, uh, edit it, and then uh, dress it up in terms of uh, putting a picture on it, a headline on it, mm-hmm. and then it's pushed out, and anybody can read it for free on the, on the website. Mm. And... Um, I see the conversation, which uh, you're still uh, not really involved with the conversation anymore, are you? Or you have an advisory role, is that right? I'm not. Uh, yeah, I, I have a, a, a sort of quasi advisory role. I say quasi because I'm formally meant to be an advisor, but uh, nobody nobody seeks my advice. So, um, hmm. so there we are. Right. Oh well, I was going to say the conversation has has you know the last few days started a reader drive, reader revenue drive, uh, yeah. much in the manner of say the Guardian, which has uh, yeah. proved very successful to them. What do you think of that idea, reader well, revenue? Well, uh, I started that I think in year two of yeah. the conversation. So okay. it, you think it's a great idea time. then? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the thing is that I managed through um, through one of my contacts to get Wayne Swan to give us. Um, digital gift recipient uh, status, which means anybody giving money uh, automatically gets a a tax deduction. 
So very few organizations have that. I mean, it's something, for example, you mentioned the Judith Nielsen Institute. That's something they're looking for, and, mm. and, and everybody tries to seek. It's, it's very much the holy grail. It's difficult to do, and it took me quite a bit of time to organize, but I, I had a friend who, who managed to, to persuade Wayne Swan to adopt it as, as part of a bill he was putting through Parliament, which gave us that status. And that was, I think, in 2013 we got that, and we launched in 2011, and we've been doing those drives. They've been very successful, um, but um, what's happened is the Victorian state government that was supporting the conversation uh, stopped giving them any money as from the end of, I think, last year or this year. Um, and that's quite right. I mean, if you think about it, to get money for seven years from a, from a state government is, is, you know, is pretty exceptional. And I think, you know, the, the convers- I, I always worked on the basis that the Victorian government would stop giving money. And I think, you know, they're having to push the barrow even harder to try and make up for the loss of revenue from the state government. You still see the conversation as a, as a relevant sort of entity, though, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm immensely proud of it, Peter. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think what, what they've, you know, what the idea has done has been transformational and the fact that it's doing so well, particularly, for example, the UK, uh, and also I happen to know that the French edition is doing extremely well, um, is, um, you know, it's just testament to the fact that it was a, uh, a strong idea which has um, been able to be replicated elsewhere. So talking about strong ideas, you mentioned at the top of the interview the Global Academy. Uh, what is the Global Academy? Uh, is this, your, this is your next venture, I think. Yes, um, we're still kind of working it through, Peter. So um, I'm going to be a little bit tentative, but essentially uh, the, the clues are all in the name, as, as in it's, it's, it's global, global. And it's an academy. And it's dealing with <laughs> not the academy. And the academy is, is sort of the global universities, uh, essentially. Mm. So what I'm looking at is, is fundamentally looking at how we can work with universities around the world to do a very different kind of service, because I, I obviously don't want to replicate what the conversation does. So, you know, we're looking at doing something quite different, and we, we're just still defining exactly how that's going to work, um, how it's going to be distributed, how it's going to be funded, uh, you know, what the governance procedures and arrangements It's a journalistic idea. It is, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, that's something which, you know, I've been very lucky, Peter. I've, I've been involved in journalism since I left university, and um, I just see it as a seamless, although I've worked on, you know, quite a few newspapers. I mean, you listed some of them. There are many more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a seamless journey insofar as I'm just interested in one thing, which is how do we provide high-quality information for citizens to be able to understand the world they live in and hopefully be able to make informed decisions, um, comments, contributions, discussions yep. about those things. I mean, that's you know, the mission. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm, I'm not really interested whether it's print, online, you know, video, uh, whatever. Mm. I just, I'm just interested in high quality information, mm. better, better informing people. Tell me, just, just so we, just one more word on the Glo- Global Academy, though. How will it be different than, say, the conversation? Because it does have some of the same elements, universities, um, internationalization. Uh, obviously, it's going to deal with some big ideas, the big issues. Uh, so how will it just, I know you're still working out, but how do you think it will be different? Well, I think, you know, a, a critical issue is um, 
just staying well away from the, the what I call the breaking news environment because the conversation does that well, which is kind of informing live issues uh, mm-hmm. with deeper contextual material and explanatory material. So um, just staying away from, from, from that area okay. um, because I think the conversation does it well. But in terms of actually how are we going to package it up and do it, that, that's literally is what I'm working on right now. And, you know, once, once I've got it all figured out and we've got it funded and so on and so forth, I'd be delighted to, um, okay. to talk to you again another, about it. Another edition of The Fourth Estate. You've just booked, you've booked it. Just, uh, we, we're running out of time, but just a couple of broad questions. Do you, um, in terms of Australia, the Australian environment and media innovation, how, how would you rate uh, Australian news media companies in terms of innovation? Poor. Poor. Which is, why? Because they're so busy trying to make a quid? No. Um, Stay afloat? Look, there's, a, there's a, um, a structural problem in Australian media, which is it's imbalance, where you have one major player, namely News Corp, mm. um, having, a, um, having a, a, an influence which is way beyond uh, what I think is healthy in a participatory democracy where there ought to be a contest of ideas, an equal contest of ideas. I think there's, there's one house has got too much share of voice, as it were, in Australia. Mm-hmm. That's the first issue. The second issue is that that's become progressively worse over the last 15 years I've been in Australia uh, because the papers you and I used to work for, the Fairfax papers, Sydney Morning Herald, Canberra Times, and, and uh, The Age, no longer belong to Fairfax because Fairfax doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put that down to extremely poor uh, leadership of, the, of Fairfax by people who are interested in running them as advertising companies rather than media companies. What I mean by that is, uh, they had no real commitment to the editorial uh, uh, role of those papers, and that meant constantly reimagining, you know, how one would do good editorial, which would capture an audience, which you would retain, um, and that didn't flow into any of the any of the executive decisions in terms of how to run these papers, with one exception that was how that you could reduce costs, which meant take head kind out, mm-hmm. and of course, at the end of the day, if you keep Chomping away at a donut, you're left with you know just a hole, nothing. A bit in the middle, yeah. And and that's where they ended up. Now, in in contrast, if you look at the interesting things that are going on, say at the Guardian, um, and it's an extraordinary story with the Guardian because mm. the Guardian was in trouble uh, or has been for a while, and this year they've broken even for the first time. And that's because they've got almost a million people now making a, a monthly contribution. Um, if you look at the New York Times, how they've changed uh, the, the, the sort of uh, way in which they do business, the way in which they connect with readers, um, and so on and so forth. The same mm. thing goes mm. for the Washington Post and others. But in it, every case, has been innovative thinking plus investment, which was absent from the Fairfax papers. I don't know what will happen when they're eaten up by Channel 9 Entertainment, which is not a media company, it's an entertainment company. Um, on the flip side, with News Corp, I think they do do some innovation. I think they do have people who are quite passionate about papers. Um, my, my reservations are just the ones I made to you earlier. It's not to do with the caliber of the people running it. Mm. Okay. Well, look, this is a, a, it is another episode of The Fourth Estate. Um, Andrew Jasmin, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you've probably got another meeting to go to. Busy, busy. Um, 
how just final question are you optimistic about the future of australian journalism with or without your 500 million a year um well, look, there's a couple of things which lead me to be uh, to have a, a glass half full rather than empty. Um, the first one is the one we touched upon, which is the role that uh, Catalano, uh, Anthony Catalano and mm-hmm. the ACM could, could provide us with. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is the Judith Nielsen Institute you touched upon. I think that will be uh, providing some, some really innovative funding for some new projects. Um, but uh, in terms of a transformational change, um, and by the way, we've not touched on the ABC, which is another, which is another subject yep. we can maybe talk about next time. Um, I think there needs to be uh, a structural approach to Australia where, where one does say that, you know, we've got to get more journalists back into the system because there's been a reduction of, as we said, 4,000. How do we put journalists back in to actually get out and do some shoe leather journalism, meaning get out and see people report, find out, watchdog, scrutinize mm-hmm. what's going on. Yep. Um, and the, the second thing we need to do is, is introduce more voices, more players. And there have been a few new players that have come into town, but a number of them, with the exclusion of the conversation, uh, and The Guardian have actually not done terribly well. So, as you know, BuzzFeed and Huffington Post and others have all had to cut right back because their models are... Are not really functioning terribly well in this country. Yeah, we live in a period of great change. In terms, we do, we do. And on that note, Andrew Jasmine, thank you so much for being on the Fourth Estate. My pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Andrew. We've been talking to Andrew Jasmine, uh, the former editor in chief of the Age and the founder and editor of the Conversation, along with lots of other senior editorial jobs. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to the Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Um, Make sure you subscribe to the Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk about journalism, media, politics, and a few things in between at your leisure. And we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is AU. And many, many thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you very much for listening.